0: Hey everybody, it's another episode of Irish Mike's Podcast. I'm Irish Mike, and I'm excited you are here. Reminder that each of these episodes is brought to you by our little store, Blacksmith Trading Company. In our store, you can find our handmade small batch bitters, men's grooming items, and our newest additions, whiskey and tobacco-scented candles. Find out more information at blacksmithtradingco.com, or of course, the home site, irishmikesmith.com. Ron Medved, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: I'm super excited to to catch up with you. Um, Been a fan of yours uh, from afar. Of course, you have uh, taught some classes um, in my past life, I guess you could say, uh, through the Pacific Institute, which we'll get into in a few minutes. Uh, But before we kind of go deep into that, I I really want to hear more about you. Where did you grow up? And then take me into your football career since we have that cool commonality in the University of Washington.
1: Yeah. Uh, You know, I grew up in Tacoma, Washington, uh, specifically South Tacoma. You know, I I ended up going to uh, Bellarmine Prep, uh, which is a a Jesuit Catholic high school, you know, in Tacoma. Uh, But if I would have gone to the public school system, I would have gone to Lincoln High School Tacoma so uh the other the other thing about my growing up I think that's notable is that I, I'm from a family of 12. I don't know if you knew that but I did
0: not but like good Catholic family. would be no, yeah,
1: big family we could do a whole podcast on that I'm I'm the oldest in a family of 12 so nine boys and three girls and uh uh yeah it's uh it was it was a really really nice upbringing actually
0: Bellerman Prep is one of my favorites. I don't know if you know this about me, but I went to Gonzaga Prep in Spokane.
1: Oh man, maybe I did know that, but I'd forgotten.
0: Yeah. I got to keep the Jesuits close. Uh, and my mother, uh, was one of 11 brothers and sisters, um, and, uh, went to uh, Catholic school in Spokane. The, uh, the boys went to Gonzaga Prep. Uh, the girls, the oldest girls went to Mary Cliff, which was an all girls Catholic school in Spokane no longer there. Um, and then, uh, the rest of the girls actually went to the public school in the neighborhood, but uh, there's a, a lot of Jesuit connection here for sure. In fact, um, one of my sons is a uh, going to be a freshman at Gonzaga University next year, and uh-huh. uh, my his two older brothers, my other sons, uh, went to Catholic colleges as well, Carol in Montana for the one that just graduated college, and the other one is at University of San Diego. So um, the legacy there is thick for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's a connection when we get to the Pacific Institute, too, because, uh, you know, Lou and Diane Tice were graduates of Seattle University, which is a a Jesuit, uh, you know, founded university, uh, and were influenced a lot by uh, the Jesuit educators there, and it influenced the Pacific Institute.
0: Oh, I love that. Yeah, I can't wait to go deeper into that. Okay, so Bellarmine Prep. You're the oldest. Um, and what's the boy girl breakdown in your family?
1: Nine boys and, and three girls. Your poor mother. <laughs> oh, she <laughs> loved it. She loved it. Remember.
0: I love it. So, you—you you, uh, was Bellerman Prep an all boys sc- school when you went, or was it? it... was.
1: It was. When I went, uh, it was an all boys school. Uh, and, uh, wh- but, you know, they eventually became co ed, and, you know, my youngest sister, Karen. You know, ended up going to Bellarmine, and uh, so anyway, uh, you know the schools uh, there. There was a St. Le- St. Leo's Academy, which uh, my sister Judy and my sister Susie went to, and and uh, but Karen ended up uh, going to Bellarmine.
0: Oh, that's awesome! So you started playing football, uh, I assume, at a young age. That's what I always thought. One of the fun parts about, um, you know, going to parochial schools and things like that is it always seemed you were allowed to play tackle football a little bit earlier than some of the rest of the kids in the neighborhood.
1: Well, you know, uh, I did start playing football at 11, 11 years old. Uh, So I was in the sixth grade. uh, And, uh, and uh, I I had played uh, baseball and basketball before kind of in the uh, CYO leagues. And, and so f- football was a little bit later. But, uh, yeah, I, once I started playing in the sixth grade, then I played I played every year after that.
0: I love it. Tell me about your experience at Bellarmine Prep playing football. Were you guys pretty good? You guys won city championships, things like that? And what uh, was the league back then? Who were some of your guys' uh, rivals in uh, Tacoma?
1: Well, your first to your first question, you know, w- we were – as good as we could be, but we were always overmatched. Uh, and, uh, you know, we were playing Lincoln and Stadium and then Wilson, and we were playing some of the Puget Sound, uh, big guys, uh, Bremerton and East Bremerton. And, and actually there was a Catholic league, you know, back then too. The So we would play the Seattle schools, uh, the Seattle Prep and Blanchette. And uh, maybe we'd get maybe we'd get lucky and 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 get to play St. Martin's, and then we usually won that game. <laughs> but uh, you know, we were uh, at that time Bellarmine was uh, three hundred and thirty boys, and you know, we were playing these these other high schools that were, you know, thousands of students. And so, uh, you know, in football, you know, it's a little bit of a numbers game. So so uh, you know, we we really had our backs against the wall most of the time. I
0: love that. So was there, was O'Day a school back then?
1: Yeah, O'Day, yeah, I forgot to mention that, but O'Day was uh, in the Catholic League.
0: You know, I it's actually worth jumping in on this uh, topic. Um, you know, my sons went to Eastside Catholic, and they had some success uh, playing football, as you probably know, at the 3A level um, over the last 10 years or so. Um, one of the things that inevitably comes up when Uh, The Catholic schools uh, predominantly start to dominate football as people start raising their hand and going, hey, wait, that's not fair. You know, they get to kind of reach maybe a little bit further uh, geography. And there's always this idea of forming a Catholic school or private school only league. Um, Do you have have any thoughts about that? I mean, this would be today in in Western Washington, I believe, would include Bellarmine Prep, of course, the O'Days, Eastside Catholics, Blanchette, Seattle Prep maybe even Archbishop Murphy, although they're significantly smaller and maybe one or two others. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that?
1: No, that's, that's news to me. Uh, it was exact opposite, you know, back in the old days. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised that, uh, uh the public schools, you know, even, well, they like to have us on the schedule because we were, we were, we were smaller and we were usually, you know, not as well manned. Uh, but, uh, uh, Yeah, I mean, I, you know, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure that uh, I can make an argument either way on that, Michael.
0: Yeah, they were also talking about putting, um, you know, Gonzaga Prep, uh, who obviously has had a lot of success uh, historically in football as well, in that same league, which, you know, sounds funny, right? Drive 300 miles to play, you know, to play somebody. Uh, for you know on a Friday night it seems a little crazy although I'm I suppose it's done in some of our rural more rural states with the smaller schools um, it, it and I didn't want to go too deep on this but the idea you know comes out of I think California uh, where in the Bay Area there are Catholic school only football leagues in the uh, Southern California I think the same um, and they kind of get a beat up on each other a little bit because um, uh, they, they tend to be better funded um, that's probably a little bit of a you know, stretch, but um, and certainly um, because they can draw from a bigger radius uh, a lot of times, you know, some of the schools that don't have as much success, uh, you know, in the city, you know, feel like they're always getting beat up and who are the final one or two schools at the end of the day? Well, in the three, a, you know, lately it's been, Eastside Catholic or O'Day, right. Yeah. Um, certainly Bellevue high had its uh, uh, run there for a decade and a half or more. Um so, you know, sometimes with the, the, the tough schools, uh, it's hard to, to, to shake them off the, you know, the pedestal, I guess you could say anyway. Yeah. So you're playing Bellarmine Prep and what position were you playing? I imagine you're playing both ways in high school.
1: Yeah, I played, uh, I played running back and I played linebacker um, and, uh, you know, played the whole game, of course, um, and uh, didn't, didn't didn't know any, any different, you know, it was, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, what was really tough, it it was, you know, again, playing against schools like Wilson, you know, who were like one of the top teams in the state, and, you know, they had uh, pretty much better players across the board. Seattle Prep was really good, you know, back in the day, Uh, John Goodwin was the head coach at at Seattle prep and he always had good teams and uh, you know, I know with me, uh, I, I had a, a, a head coach, uh, my senior year at Bellarmine, a guy named Norm Diebel. And he's, he's the one coach that said, Ron, I'm going to give you the ball as much as you want it. And, uh, uh, and, and uh, anyway, I love that. And, uh, I even played a little quarterback now come to think of it, but my, me playing quarterback was, uh, rolling out <laughs> and running around end. You know, I didn't, I didn't really have a, a quarterback's arm. I, I didn't, I didn't pass much, but, but the bottom line of all of that is that, you know, I would usually end up being, you know, pretty banged up by the end of the game, you know, because if you're the other team and you were playing us, you know, you knew who, you knew who to uh, focus on. <laughs> and so and when you're,
0: you're rolling out you need to give yourself an option to run away from some of these guys chasing you if your receivers or whatever weren't
1: open is that right well yeah and you know my coach was creative uh coach Debo was creative you know he had a pocket full of trick plays and things and you know I got to carry I got the ball on some very innovative screen passes and things like that so uh uh you know you know we had a way to re- way to respond but Anyway, when I was playing at Bellarmine, I mean, I I, I really didn't have any any idea that, that I was going to get a scholarship to go play beyond Bellarmine. I mean, maybe the last half of my senior season, you know, I might have known that I was a, in consideration, you know. But my last game uh, at, at Bellarmine as a senior, you know, I scored uh, five touchdowns in the game. Wow. Which, which was... Really, uh, we were playing a little bit weaker team. Uh, Mount Tahoma was high school, which is now a big school, was was in its first year. And and so they weren't as seasoned as we were. And anyway, things, you know, it was one of those games where things just sort of broke uh, our way. And uh, anyway, I, I, I had a uh, kind of a showcase game and, you know, uh, sure enough, you know, there were scouts in the stands, you know, specifically from University of Oregon and University of Washington that saw the game. And, you know, both of them offered me a scholarship uh, after that.
0: I love that, you know, my dad uh, played football for North Central over in Spokane, and it was about 1960, I think, is when he graduated and he got a letter from Jim Owens, and, uh, and I think the recruiting process is probably a touch different uh, today, of course, um, but it was just a letter. Hey, you know, we're interested. We've seen some, probably not seen some tape, but we've heard about you fill out this form and, you know, your, your bench press and your vertical and all these different things and uh, send some more information to us, but we might have a spot for you to walk on or, or look into a scholarship or things like that. How did that recruiting process go for you? Um, I guess it would have been Coach Owens, right at the time.
1: Yeah, coach Owens was the coach, and uh, actually Don White was one of his assistants. And Don White was assigned to me. Um, and uh, you know, it it uh, Michael, it really wasn't as scientific as you know they they do it today. I mean, uh, the fact that I also played basketball, I also was a track and field guy. Uh, you know, there were quite a few different ways to sort of evaluate my, my potential, I think. And, uh, and, and so I don't remember going through anything, you know, that, that came close to like sort of measuring me or timing me or whatever they, everything was done by intuition back then.
0: So, so this coach maybe saw a couple of games of yours on the Friday nights or whatever, knew that you were a multi-sport athlete and, uh, and, and so they offer you a scholarship. Is that right? University of Washington?
1: You know, I think they're paying attention to what other schools are interested in you. Uh, Notre Dame was inter- interested in me as well. I didn't mention them. Um, and and uh, yeah, and, you know, Oregon, you know, really did a strong recruiting, you know, on me. And so even back then, the, you know, there was the rivalry between Oregon and Washington was, you know, was right there front and center and so you know some of the recruiting was we just don't want them to him to go to the other school right (laughs) right and uh you know i actually committed to oregon and then changed my mind and sort of recommitted to washington and len casanova who was the head coach at oregon at that time was really livid with me uh and uh i mean i don't blame him but you know there's a lot of stuff going on i mean you're you're 17 years old and you're going through this uh, you know recruiting process and and even back then i mean it's 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 a mind bender you know to a great extent you know you're wined and dined and and you know told everything that you that, you know that they think that you would want to hear and and i did have a good experience with 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 the schools that i visited uh and uh, i did not visit notre dame but i i, I made several a couple of visits to Oregon, a couple of visits to Washington, but they didn't have signing day and things like that either. So, I mean, I, I actually didn't finally commit to Washington until August, early August, you know, and, and before my freshman year, which oh, wow. would started in in late September.
0: Wow, well, who was the coach at Notre Dame at the time? Was that uh, Coach Parsegian or was no, that uh, Prehm?
1: It was uh, Joe Kuharik. Oh, okay. Nice. Joe Kuharik. And, and, and ironically, uh, when I got drafted uh, in, into the NFL uh, in Philadelphia, guess who was the head coach in, uh, in <laughs> Philadelphia? It was Joe Kuharik. Wow. So he remembered me. Uh, he, he even told me I, he remembered me getting away. Uh, but, I mean, I had a little history with him. And so, so uh, yeah, it was uh, – smaller world back then
0: oh that's fantastic okay before we get to philadelphia and playing for the eagles so you you ended up playing for the for the uw my alma mater right Mm -hmm. for uh for all four years and and what position did you play again at the uw
1: i was a running back you know running back okay yeah i played defensive back uh because my freshman and sophomore year we played both ways so i would play i played running back and I played cornerback, and so uh, then the rule change change happened in college football, where they ended up going to platoon football, and 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 uh, the UW said you're going to be an offensive player. So I was fine with that. So I I ended up playing four years uh, at running back, and actually uh, freshmen weren't able to play on the varsity back then. But by the time I was a sophomore, I I actually started right away as a running back and, and lettered three years, you know, as a running back.
0: That's awesome. So I, I don't want to pretend you're super old, but when you traveled to Eugene to play the Ducks, I mean, was this, was this by bus? Uh,
1: no, I I don't think so. I, I, I will tell you this though. The first airplane flight I, I ever took in my life was from, you know, SeaTac to to Eugene on my, my recruiting trip to Oregon. As I, as I remember it, um, you know, we played Oregon in Portland in Multnomah stadium in, in, in those days. So I'm pretty sure we flew there, you know, uh, on one of those prop planes, uh, DC eights or whatever they were. And, and, uh, I don't remember a long bus trip, uh, I do remember some long plane flights, though, because, uh, you know, my sophomore year at UW, we played at, we, op- we opened up at Air Force Academy. So we flew to Colorado Springs on, 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 again, one of those much slower prop planes. And then the next week, we played the University of Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh. Oh, my gosh. That, that was a long flight.
0: Uh, you had to refuel probably along the way, I imagine. I think
1: we did. I think we did. Right. We did halfway. That's awesome.
0: When I was uh, working for the UW in the 90s, uh, we played that, you know, the Whammy in Miami. You, you probably remember that game. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so, heck, even from Seattle to Miami in the in the plane, they had to stop. at I think Wichita or someplace on both sides of that trip uh, to get to, uh, to to refuel, because I don't think at the time the Alaska planes And I don't understand aircraft very well, Uh, but we must not have flown a big enough plane to get it in one trip. But we had to stop over and get some gas. But um, what about to Pullman? Did you uh, the the joke was uh, the airport was so small for so long that, you know, the Huskies couldn't couldn't fly in for many, many years um, or they had to fly into a different airport. Right. Lewiston, maybe.
1: I don't remember it that way. We, uh, We we flew into Pullman. Or we okay. flew into Spokane. Let's put it that way.
0: Oh, there you go. Okay. That makes more sense. Yeah.
1: Matter of fact, uh, let me see. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you play home and away, home and away. Uh, I think in my three years of varsity play, we played one one year in Spokane and two years in Seattle. Got it. So that was not a big deal. Uh, Joe Alby Stadium.
0: Joe Alby Stadium, you bet. That's right. That's awesome. Yeah. The, I think the Apple cup and it was, it was the Apple cup then, right? It didn't, when right. did, I don't yeah. remember the name, if it was called the Apple cup from the beginning or, or yeah, if that well, was a little marketing ploy, you know, the last 30 years,
1: but Apple cup. Yeah. love that.
0: That's great. Uh, okay, great. So you had a great career at the university of Washington, some memorable games, coach Owens, and then, um, and I'd love to go deeper on that uh, in another conversation, but you're, you're good enough to get the attention of the NFL, right? So, so the Philadelphia Eagles, what drafted you or or tell me about that process.
1: Yeah, the Eagles uh, drafted me, uh, but they drafted me as a defensive back. And, you know, the, my prior two years at the UW were, were as a running back. So they, they knew I had some defensive back history and, you know, I was, kind of an all around athlete. So, so, I mean, they, they drafted me, they didn't draft me high. They drafted me low, uh, kind of, you know, thinking that, well, you know, he's a good athlete. So, uh, we're, we're betting on him being able to switch positions. And, uh, you know, that was, that was not easy, you know, at that level, as you can imagine, uh, going from, going from running back college, running back to, uh, NFL, uh, safety actually they 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 they, they played me at safety and you know sure enough I mean my luck was that I went into Eagles training camp the first year and uh, the Eagle tight end that I had to cover and practice every day was was all pro Pete Reslav and so I had to learn the hard way you know and it was demoralizing uh, to You'd have to try to cover him because he was very tricky he had very tricky uh, uh, pass running routes and things like that but I think like a lot of rookies uh, you know I, may, I made the team also partly on my on, on my special team's play so that's uh, that's also something that you know I had experience at the UW and you know was was pretty good at
0: that's awesome so how many years did you end up playing in the NFL
1: five five years all with the Eagles all with the Eagles. Yeah.
0: Oh, wow. Now, did you, at the end of five years, did, was there an injury involved or was it just time to? Uh...
1: Yeah. Yeah. I had, uh, I got hurt my last year. Um, I had uh, ankle surgery and, and uh, it was kind of complicated and, you know, and actually I didn't really, I had kind of a late sur- uh, surgery after the season. And then I really wasn't able to sort of get back, uh, all the way by the time the next training camp opened up, so so I ended up uh, that en- that ended my career.
0: And then you transition uh, at some point in your professional life, uh, you get connected to the Pacific Institute and Lou Tice. How um, his name and, and his wife's name and, and the Pacific Institute are, you know, well known, legendary as far as impacting people's lives. But uh, tell me about that process. When in your Uh, career I guess you could say Uh, did that happen and and kind of take me on that journey a little bit
1: well that's that's interesting I mean it all looks uh, kind of charmed you know when you (laughs) when you look at it from a long distance away but first of all you know uh, it's it's a really serious and tough transition going from the NFL to ordinary life you know on a day-to-day basis I mean you know, you, you're, you know, I was 27 years old, uh, my football career was over. It wasn't that I didn't have other talents and other smarts. But you know, the thing is, is that you got to make this big career transition, uh, you know, relatively early in your life. My the thing that I had going for me, though, was that I, I did have an interest in psychology. And uh, I, I, I studied and practiced, you know, the sort of some of the techniques that some of the other athletes were uh, using in those days, especially the uh, Olympic athletes, the, the skiers, the, the, you know, the Phil Mar and, and, and uh, skiers. I mean, they were using visualization and, uh, you know, I was, uh, you know, I knew right away that I needed every edge that I could get you know, in the NFL. So I, I very much uh, got into the mental game. And, you know, I so much so, you know, that I was taking uh, psychology books to training camp with me. I didn't, I, I didn't know that I was going to have a career out of that. But I, I certainly had a head start on, on, on learning about psychology and, you know, high performance.
0: Oh, that's awesome! And well, you mentioned the Mars, right? The brothers the skiers, and they're also yeah. Washington kids, right? Aren't they from yeah, like yeah, Yakima yeah. or someplace?
1: Yeah, Yakima. They're they're from Yakima. But yeah, I, now now, I may have my timetable wrong, you know, because I did look that up once, and it seemed like the Mars twins are actually after me. But uh, but I remember them using visualization techniques, and I was picking that. Pick, I picked that up from other athletes, not just in football, but uh, Olympic athletes. Uh, I was, I'm a big fan of track and field and, you know, that was really one of my loves track and field. So I would, I would follow the Olympics and, and, uh, you know, I had my, you know, my favorites and, uh, you know, and I, and I actually was a decathlon guy. So, you know, I was uh, training for the decathlon before I ended up specializing in football. Uh, and, and so, um, anyway, I just, um, yeah, I got, I got introduced to the mental side of the game, uh, pretty early on. And then, you know, when, when I left football, uh, for, in the Eagles, uh, I, I, first of all, I went into the financial services business. I, I, I worked as an investment advisor for a while, but I, I, I would, uh, read books and I would take seminars. You know, in the in in the field that the Pacific Institute was in, in until, you know, uh, it was one year, which was maybe two three years after I'd gotten out of football, I went to a seminar that that was Lou Tyson's seminar, and I met him and and I became we became friends, and I had other friends you know that were friends of Lou's and Diane's, and so anyway uh, it was. Uh, I started studying his business uh just trying to figure out you know how i might fit into pacific institute and that that was back in the mid-70s i
0: was just going to ask you the time frame um and and is it fair to say and maybe you touched on this that uh, uh specifically with sports um working on the mindset and the and the mental side of it and the visualization and the different psychology that was new. That was not just new. It was kind of groundbreaking. Nobody was really teaching that. Is that, is that true?
1: Yeah, I was pretty early, pretty early on in the game. And, you know, I didn't also too, I didn't want to necessarily do just uh, football projects or sports related projects. I, I was interested in business projects. And uh, so, um, you know, and, and actually being a former athlete, Actually helped me in the business community. Um, I mean, it gave me a little extra credibility. Um, you know, I had practical experience using, you know, some of these mindset tools and you know things like that. And so, um, yeah, I I uh, I have worked on several sports projects and team projects over the years, but the large majority of my work with the Pacific Institute has been you know businesses and government and military.
0: Oh, which we, I want to get into all that too uh, here in a, in a few minutes. So, so you, so let me take you back to the. You said kind of mid seventies. You you attend. Um, I mean, what was it at that time? A workshop, a seminar? Or it was this like a two or three day? You know, show up, bring a sack lunch, and le- I mean, tell me about that. Those, are, uh, I guess, that would be the early days of the Pacific Institute, right?
1: Uh, Pacific Institute. Uh, Lou and Diane started in started nineteen seventy one. Uh, and you know this is our 50th anniversary this year Um, that's awesome incidentally I came on board I mean I went to a seminar in 74 so like a few years later I joined the institute in late 75 Um, you know Lou was teaching a three and a half day seminar once a month up at Port Ludlow and that was sort of the base basic activity of the institute so people would Come from Seattle, or they—they'd actually started coming from different parts of the n- northwest and the, the the country, really, to attend loose seminar. So he teaches one once a month, but you know, a, a, a live seminar like that is not a very good model for scaling a business. And so that was the one thing that I was most curious about. I was trying to say, like, how do how do we scale this business? And and the answer came uh, when we concluded, uh, Lou concluded and you know, a couple of us were along for the ride on this is to put Lou on videotape and to actually create a learning system, including facilitation and, and, and uh, you know, corporate application. Uh, that concept, you know, was brand new. Videotape as a technology was brand new. So there was a lot of kind of psychology and business was brand new. So it was, it was a lot of pioneering there. And, and uh, but that was the genesis of it. I mean, and once we got our feet on the ground and, you know, got understanding what we were doing, I mean, that uh, those additions allowed the Pacific Institute to grow out of Seattle, become a national firm and even an international firm, you know, you know, within 10, 10 years.
0: I love that. We, we take a lot of that for granted, uh, looking backwards, as you mentioned about some other things, um, you know, this was cutting edge uh, videotape series, probably audio tapes, you know, different things uh, where people were attending workshops or seminars or retreats and they hear the speaker and they want the content, but they want to be able to take it home. Now we log on to YouTube and we can find a little bit of everything probably from somebody somewhere. Right. Yeah. Um, but this had never happened up until that point.
1: Yeah. this that was, this was the genesis of all of that. I, I remember, uh, you know, several years into it, one of my clients was uh, RCA. You remember the RCA company that sure. ended up getting acquired by general electric, but the RCA David Sarnoff laboratories are, are in Princeton, New Jersey. And, and, and uh, Sarnoff Laboratories is where a lot of the R and D, you know, went on for RCA, you know, in radio and television. And I didn't know it until I, they became a client, but they actually had many of the patents for videotape at that, at that laboratory, you know, in Princeton, New Jersey. And, and I, I, I remember one, one of my members Memories, you know, fond memories is being at uh, the RCA laboratory, having scientists, you know, in the seminar that that I was facilitating, uh, and having them mention that they're so happy to see the videotape medium being used in the way that it was, you know, with the Pacific Institute curriculum. Uh, it was like such a strong reinforcement of what we were doing.
0: That's awesome. So, so in the seventies, as you're developing uh, content and curriculum and Lou Tice and his wife were teaching up in Port Ludlow. um, So people kind of play, walk through it. Somebody would, cause it's not the internet. There's no internet registration at this point, right? So you you call a phone number or you, you respond to some mailer and then you show up in Port Ludlow for three and a half days. I mean, tell me about, and then what was the content of those retreats? in a, in a 30 seconds.
1: A, a retreat, uh, you know, a lot of word of mouth, you know, marketing, you know, people that have been to it before, kind of sold people on the idea that this, is a great retreat, you know, or seminar, as you said, uh, you know, uh, you know, we had offices, uh, downtown Seattle in the, uh, old bank of California building. And, uh, you know, we had staff that would, you know, take reservations, you know, we had, we had uh, reps, you know, that were out in the community or on the phones, you know, that were selling the seminar and the benefits of the seminar. So anyway, yeah, you, and and we made a we had a really good package. So if you came and if you brought your spouse, I mean, it it didn't cost your spouse, but you know, maybe a hundred dollars extra, you know, to come. So we we we've always had a strong uh, couples emphasis at the Pacific Institute. So um, yeah, you you'd, you'd, you'd uh, when they were at Port Ludlow, and you know they 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 were at other locations, you know, over the years. But you know, it'd be like you'd get on the ferry and and you'd head over to Port Ludlow, and you would arrive uh, at for uh, an evening program on a Thursday night. You know, everybody arrives, and and uh, you know, Lou would teach for uh, two or three hours you know, on that Thursday night, sort of get get everybody going, get everybody on the same page. You'd, you'd come back and spend all day Friday and all day Saturday, you know, again, in the workshop, in the seminar, uh, and then uh, half a day Sunday. So you'd come on back on Sunday morning. And, and actually, there was a really nice dinner on Saturday night. Uh, Lou spoke at that dinner, but it was a really nice semi-formal dinner that people would attend and then you know you'd be back on the ferry by you know Sunday afternoon go you know go home you know wherever that was.
0: Wow and and the focus that's a lot of content in what two three and a half days. Um, I mean what were some of the the high level bullet points that were uh, covered during those times?
1: Well um, first of all I mean there was also some free time you know, they were free. It wasn't just all, you know, being in the classroom. I mean, you'd be in the classroom for three hours and then you might not be back in the classroom for, uh, another two hours. You you have a two hour break or a three hour break. And so, you know, uh, part of the logic of the learning was, you know, to give people, you know, space and time to sort of reflect on what they were learning and, and, uh, you know, so it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, super intense in terms of the classroom, uh, Lou being such a great teacher and Diane being such a wonderful hostess, uh, you know, they, 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 made you feel really comfortable. And there was always kind of extracurricular activities to do if you wanted to, or you could just, you know, relax in your, your condo or whatever your hotel room. Um, but, uh, as far as the bullet points were concerned, Michael, the bullet points are the bullet points that you remember, you know, for the most part. Love it. The curriculum, uh, loose curriculum didn't change radically over the years. Uh, It's the basics of cognitive psychology and uh, information on how the mind works. And, you know, what's always been a, a competitive advantage to Pacific Institute is that most people didn't get that kind of information in school, you know. No matter what, where they went to high school or college, back in the day, that information about, you know, how the mind work was was not readily available. And for business people, I mean, business people quickly, you know, got to understand that. Wow, this is the competitive advantage, you know. If 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 I understand how my mind works and sort of, I organized my life, uh, you know, around that, I've got a great advantage, but wow, what if my people, all of them, you know, had, this, had the same tool, had the same advantage. And so, you know, that ended up being, you know, what allowed Pacific Institute to sort of uh, grow because there, there were lead leaders and then there were lead companies and, and it was sort of logical that you would go from, you know, a small group of people attending to eventually expanding it throughout your company.
0: Wow. That's awesome. Cognitive psychology. And we, we, um, so some of the, how, how am I going to say this? You did not want to focus entirely on, on athletes, but you guys ended up working with some of the premier, you know, coaches and leaders and teams uh, that any of us have ever heard of in American sports. Is that, is that right?
1: That's true. That's true. Um, you know, uh, while we were doing work with corporations and a lot of work with the military and government organizations, I mean, some of the sports teams that came to us, I mean, uh, Phoenix Suns are now, you know, in the NBA championships. And way back then we, we, we were doing project with the Phoenix Suns. Uh, wow. And uh, John McCloyd was the head coach of the Phoenix Suns and he and Lou had a close relationship. But uh, Fred Akers at the University of Texas, he was a long legendary coach at Texas. You know, we, we work with them. Uh, you know, uh, we've worked with Dennis Erickson uh, at different places over the years. And then uh, Pete Carroll, Pete Carroll, uh, we had a lot, we've had a long, long relationship with him, you know, starting back even before when he was at USC, but all through USC and then you know uh, at the Seahawks, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, and then Nick Saban, uh, you know, at, at University of Alabama, we were we were part of uh, five of their recent national championships, uh, uh, and, and, uh, you know, starting in 2009, I think was their first, you know, recent national championship. And so we, we were part of, a, a team of consultants that, that, that work with the university of Alabama. That's awesome.
0: And what do people say about Pete Carroll and Nick Saban is that they changed the culture Um, uh, wherever they went Um, and people uh, want to know what the secret sauce is for those uh, guys and their leadership and it sounds like a lot of it is rooted in uh, some of the training and consultancy work uh, done by members of the Pacific Institute in changing how people you know sort of think and look at things and and it's obviously translated into a tremendous amount of success on uh, you know on the the football field
1: yeah or, or basketball court or whatever. Yeah, it's uh, that's true. And, uh, you know, there in, in terms of Pete Carroll and Nick Saban, I think, I think they had, there's some significant differences, you know, in their coaching style, but, um, uh, uh, Pete, Pete's really, really a player's coach. Nick, not that Nick Saban is not, but you know, he, he runs a tighter ship and, and, uh, uh, but both of them are concerned for the, the person, not just the athlete. And so uh, if you if, if you come to the University of Alabama as a five-star recruit, uh, you, that means that you're the best of the best. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're mature in uh, making good decisions, you know, again, as a 17-year-old, you know, so... Some of, the, some of the work that, that we've done at these universities is helping young players sort of grow up faster and to be able to sort of be accountable and responsible and, uh, and, and sort of be in charge of their lives uh, and uh, which they, they, they need to make a jump in that in order to, in order to uh, you can't play well if your life is uh, disorganized and a mess.
0: Well, and, and outside of football, right? I think I've heard Nick Saban uh, speak enough to to know that he, as you mentioned, concerned for the human uh, side of it, knowing that football is not always going to work out for everybody long-term and eventually it will be over, uh, injury, yeah. age, whatever. And so what is their, um, you know, how, how are they as people? And I think that the molding of young men in this case, um, I, you know, it's fantastic and and reaching into, you know, some of these, Young men's, you know, lives, right? Their their family lives and their backgrounds and, and, oh, all, and even culture and 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 having a, an impact on that is fantastic. Um, I could spend you know a ton of time on on the athlete side, but you know, I, I've also heard many um, you know sales trainers and and speakers and consultants over the years. Obviously, there's a whole bunch of name dropping that we could do that we've all heard of. Um, but what makes uh, Lou Tice and and all of your team and Pacific Institute, uh, you know, what, what's different uh, than some of the typical sales training, and I'm going to use sales as the example is simply because I'm in sales, um, then compared to some of the other um, folks out there, men and women that are teaching this stuff. I mean, what, what makes this a, a little bit different for, for Joe Sixpack, the salesman, whether he's selling insurance or in my case, loans um, or, or whatever?
1: Yeah, good question. Uh, I'll come to the salesman, you know, part of it. But you know, I over the years I, I worked with a lot of scientists and technical professionals. I've done a lot of projects in the aerospace industry, and here are here are professionals who are well educated and and smart. Uh, but when they were exposed to Pacific Institute, and they and and they're taught about sort of part of their brain that, that they weren't exposed to in engineering school, you know, the uh, part about decision-making and creativity and, and, you know, goal accomplishment. I mean, they, they, uh, they loved it, you know, they, they, they it was almost like, uh, you know, kind of completing their education, you know, and, and so uh, with salespeople, you know, I find that, you know, there's, there's hard skills you know that are related to sales, and then there are soft skills, and the soft skills are, uh, you know, again, it's it's kind of a mindset thing. It's like uh, you know, having an understanding of what makes you tick, and what makes you persistent, and what what makes you uh, uh, a good listener uh, as a salesperson. You know, uh, and 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 then and and being able to sort of evaluate yourself, and then. How do you change yourself? In other words, you, got, you get an idea of, hey, this is what a composite picture of the best salespeople that I've ever known. This is kind of the, the talents that they have and the aspects that they have. That's one thing, but then how do I transform myself into that profile? That, that, is, sort of the, that is the subject of psychology. And so you you learn about how to uh, grow into you know the kind of professional that you want to be, and so there's the there's the value right there.
0: I love that. That's really really good. Um, I I know that when I'm a student, um, I enjoy learning tactics. Uh, but you know, one, what's one thing I can implement in my business to be better, do better, you know, act better, market better, you know, you name yeah. it. Um, one, th- one of the things that, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the name Brian Buffini, but he's a big real estate coaching company guy. Yeah. Yeah, um, okay. And one of the things he has said over the years, uh, and I don't know if it's original <laughs> or what, but, uh, the, he always says, you know, the principles don't change just the tactics do. And what I like about training and sales training and, and you know, psychology training is that, hey, the principles are going to stand the test of time. Um, you, we may get the content out a little differently. So instead of maybe three and a half day retreats at Port Ludlow and then videotape, you know, now Pacific Institute has probably pivoted a little bit and made some adjustments over the last 50 years uh, to respond the way people, uh, you know, sort of our society has has evolved a little bit as well. So, it, with with that note, um, what is and Lou Tice has has uh, been deceased for for a bit now. But what is the legacy of Lou and Diane Tice and the Pacific Institute? I know it's not legacy meaning we're looking in the rearview mirror only. But what what is if you had to sum it up in a few words, what would that be? I know there's a lot there, but
1: yeah, there is a lot there. For <clears throat> first of all, <clears throat> speaking of Brian Buffini. Uh, he's been through Lou's program. Oh, (laughs) he's a big fan of Lou Tyson. He quotes Lou, you know, pretty often, uh, in in his teaching. And, uh, what I like about Brian Buffini is, you know, he always gives attribution. And, uh, uh, so, you know, Lou Lou and Brian knew, you know, met each other, knew each other. Um, uh, but, uh, over the you know Lou passed away in, in the spring of 2012. Uh, it's almost 10 years now. and you know there's been, just been a, a big transition. Uh, you know, it's uh, Lou was not only the key teacher, but you know he was he was the chief executive officer and you know he was a part of the you know the strategy making. So when when Lou passed, You know, that was a really important sort of loss, you know, for the company. Uh, Interestingly, uh, Lou actually started a succession planning uh, effort for the institute a couple years before he passed away. Uh, it, It With a company like ours and in a company with a strong personality like Lou's, it takes it's not surprising that it takes 10 years, you know, to sort of get to the other side of it. And I would say that we're well on the other side of it. Uh, in, a, in an odd way, uh, COVID, you know, has helped us get there uh, because, uh, you know, we, 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 we used Lou's programs f- for, for several years after he passed away, but then, then we made programs you know, that did not have Lou as the primary teacher. Matter of fact, uh, you know, a lot of the teaching, the concepts of Pacific Institutes done through multimedia uh, and they were, they, they've been quite effective. Uh, then uh, COVID comes along here and uh, uh, Pacific Institute, to make a long story short, I mean, basically moved to everything being virtual. So, so uh, today uh, there's no classroom training uh, that's going on for the most part. All of it is done, uh, you know, through Zoom, and uh, you know there's been a lot of training and a lot of technology that's gone into into sort of doing that. Interestingly the Pacific Institute that, that doesn't even own any real estate anymore. I mean, there's, there's, there's no office, there's no, uh, you know, office anymore. We're, we're a collection of a couple hundred people worldwide and we meet, we meet on zoom. We, we, we teach over zoom and, uh, you know, we're perfecting that practice. So, um, uh, so here we are at 50 years and, uh, uh, it, it, it there's this whole new sort of world that's opening up uh that basically says through technology so you know more technology you know the videotape was technology and it allowed the pacific institute to reach you know 10 million people worldwide now with what we're, we're the institute has been required to do in order to sort of reach more people there's there's bigger goals for the Pacific Institute, and you know the information itself, the con- the, the course uh, content of the Pacific Institute, never never been more valuable, never been more sort of essential, you know, to helping you know people grow and helping people succeed than than it ever was. And so, uh, anyway, uh, the future the future is still out there. know for the pacific institute and and uh you know it has not been easy you know to get here but you know i i would say that we we've gotten here and um primary reason is because we're kind of a product of our own product (laughs) i love that product of your own product um you
0: you teed up one of my next questions pretty good you know what is uh the pacific institute up to now it sounds like they're um has been some, some adjustments, some navigating, uh, and pandemic maybe induced, or at least forced you to maybe commit to some shifts in how you guys teach and, and train and, and consult. Um, but what, what is next? You said the future is still the future, but, uh, what are some of the new programs that you're excited about? Um, and, uh, you know, we'll call it seminars or workshops or content uh, yeah. that you and your team are, are really excited about as we get into the next half of 2021.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know our core concepts are still our core concepts. You still need to know how your mind works in order to sort of affect, you know, changes. So there's there's some basics that remain fundamental, you know, to what we do. However, kind of what's new is is that, and again, thanks to COVID, it, it sounds weird to say that, but you know, there's been there's been uh, an incre- increasing need for uh, mental health uh, support. Uh, and uh, there's, uh, there's there's a lot of really solid new research called well-being theory that, that we're teaching now, in addition to our core concepts, which basically, you know, uh, psychologists, especially over the last 15 years, have really honed in on, you know, what are the essential things that you know, we need to learn and that we need to be aware of and that we need to practice in order to have, you know, really, uh, vibrant mental health and, and, uh, thrive, uh, you know, in sort of our life and our living. And so that's what I would say is sort of the new thing. Uh, we have a, a, fl- a, a flagship curriculum that, you know, that, that we're offering now, which is called, um, uh, achieving balanced well-being. It includes the core concepts. It includes well-being concepts. And there's even like some of the some of the best uh, excerpts from Lou Tice's teaching over the years that's worked into this program, you know, along with you know a way that you know you can apply it to your own life. And then if you're a company, you know, you can you you can actually get people involved in leading discussion groups. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, there doesn't take a lot of formal training like it used to, to become sort of a facilitator of the education. There's a lot of the, uh, of that, that's built into the education. So that's, uh, that's what we're offering right now. That's sort of right in the starting gate. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's what I've been working on, uh, primarily. Uh, I, uh, I'm part of the Pacific Institute's research committee, and and so we're research we're researching sort of what what I just talked about, which is the, you know, the well-being information, and then also sort of the delivery mechanisms, and <coughs> excuse me, and and. Uh, uh, yeah, my role is is yet to be really crystallized. I I have options, you know, to w- where I'm going to spend my time, but I think, you know, at the end of the day it's going to end up being like where can I lend my experience uh, and talents to help get this information to the most people possible.
0: Oh, I love this. This is good. Ron, I, I love this conversation. Where can people get more information? about what you and the Pacific Institute are doing uh, maybe commit to some future trainings and uh, programming and things like that where, where can people get more information
1: well just um, you know the Pacific Institute website is a, a pretty interesting place it's and it's Institute. you am going to put that the in there thepacificinstitute.com uh other than other otherwise, I mean, contacting me directly is you know is okay. I mean, uh, you know, I'm at uh, rmedved at thepacificinstitute.com. com. That's my email address, uh, and um, you know, the, you know, I think that uh, it's just a matter of you know m- making a contact at one of those two places, and then once we get to know who you are a little bit, then we can, we can point you in the right direction or we can get the right people involved. But uh, hopefully it's as simple as that.
0: Oh, I love it. Well, thank you very much, Ron. Um, it's great information. I know we just scratched the surface and I, of course, get excited about the football history being a fellow now that I know that you're a fellow Catholic school kid, and of course, the UW, um, I love to hear some of the history and how people have gotten to where they are. And then, of course, the big transition into your life's work essentially uh, with the Pacific Institute and your family, and Lou Tice and his family. Um, just really, really good information. And uh, I hope to be able to get this information out to as many people as we can professionally and personally. Um, and I just appreciate your time and for giving me a chance to, to connect with you for a few minutes. Hey, my
1: pleasure, Michael. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, uh, again, I know I know a lot of your colleagues and, uh, you know, uh, I wish them well and uh, look, look to uh, uh, reconnect with them if, if that's appropriate.
0: I love it. I hope to do so, too. We'll, we'll be in touch real soon. Appreciate okay. it, Ron.
1: Okay, Michael. All right. Take care. Bye. Take care.
0: Well, that wraps up another episode of Irish Mike's podcast. Thank you so much for supporting me. And don't forget to subscribe and rate on your favorite platform. This podcast can be found on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast apps. And I would love it if you gave me a five-star rating. If you like what you hear, feel free to share with a friend. Thanks again for listening.